I'm Eric Messerschmidt, Director of Photography on Raised by Wolves, and you're listening to The Go Creative Show. Hey, everyone. My name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. And this is The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we have Eric Messerschmidt, Director of Photography. Now, he was on a couple of months ago for his work on Mindhunter, And now he's back talking about his work on the HBO Max series, Raised by Wolves. If you guys have seen this show, you know that it is, it couldn't be any more different than Mindhunter. So we talk about how he made that transition, lessons he learned, and maybe things that he'll employ on his next season of Mindhunter. Who knows? But one thing we do know is we talk a lot about shooting day for night, which is something that he wasn't totally comfortable with at the beginning. And I know we can all relate to that. But he learned a lot. So if you guys are interested in day-for-night shooting, um, you definitely want to check out this episode because we have a pretty good conversation in the middle of the show there about it. Uh, Before we get going, I want to mention a couple of things. First, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Search Go Creative Show and click subscribe. We'll be there for you every week. And follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And we've been doing a lot of fun stuff with the YouTube and more to come because we're gonna be introducing Go Creative Show Live. Now, I've been talking about it for a while. The reason we haven't done it yet is two reasons. One, I need to make a studio back here. I haven't done it yet, it's just bare walls, but we're getting there. And the other reason is we wanna make sure that we can have audience interaction, real, true audience interaction. Um, So we're, we're trying to figure that all out. And if any of you guys have some tips or ideas on how to do that, we are all ears as we develop our Go Creative Show Live platform. Um, what else? What else? What else? Our sponsor, MZ, Education for Creatives. You know about them. We love those guys, and we'll be talking about them later in the show. But for now, let's dive right in because there's so much to discuss with Eric Messerschmidt, ASC, the Director of Photography for Raised by Wolves. So I'm here with Eric Messerschmidt, ASC, talking about Raised by Wolves on HBO Max. Eric, welcome back to Go Creative Show. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me back. It's seriously only been like four months, I think. It really has been a quick turnaround. You have been busy. (laughs) You certainly have been busy. I have. I have. Yeah. No rest for the weary. Oh, my God. Last time you were on, we were talking about uh, Mindhunter. And we did an Instagram live with you too. So we really were, we had a lot going on. We had the episode talking about Mindhunter. We did the Instagram live, both of which are on um, our YouTube page and gocreativeshow.com. So you guys can check that out. But you are backed for Raised by Wolves, which has really gotten a lot of attention over the past few weeks. Um, Directed by Ridley Scott. I'd love to hear about kind of how you got onto this project. Um, were you, did you jump on immediately from Mindhunter? Was this your next project? Well, no, actually we were, we were in the midst of prepping World War Z, um, the second, the second uh, film and, uh, and then the movie shut down and uh, Raised by Wolf sort of just popped up as, a, as an opportunity. And um, I, I met with Ridley and I met with Aaron and, uh, we had a couple phone conversations, and and they invited me to join the show. So yeah, it was sort of, it 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 wasn't something that was it wasn't a long developing process. It it sort of popped up as a as a as a as an opportunity, and and I I jumped at it. Obviously, you know. Of course, I mean, had you worked with Ridley before? Never, 
No, I never, no, I never met him. Um, and so it was, uh, it's really cool to, to, to be a little bit of a little part of his world for a little while, you know? What was the experience like? I mean, he's, he's one of those directors that you like, he's one of those directors that his name is like the, the director name is kind of why you see his projects sometimes. Like it, it, his name sort of transcends his projects in a way. He's just one of those, one of those guys. Um, I mean, you know, not many of them out there in the first place. And to get an opportunity to work with one, I mean, what was the experience like? Well, you know, I didn't shoot, I didn't shoot any of the episodes that Ridley directed. So I, I was one of, one of three cinematographers that worked on the show, um, Darius Wolski and Ross Emery. Um, but of course we're working under the umbrella of Ridley and, and the creative vision of Ridley. So, uh, you know, that it was fantastic for me. It was a, a completely different from anything I'd ever done before. Total world building, um, you know, alien planet, obviously far in the future. Um, so just creatively and, and aesthetically completely different from, from Mindhunter, obviously, but, but really anything I'd ever worked on. So it was, you know, it's fantastic. It was a really cool experience. I mean, we shot in South Africa, which was new for me. And, um, and, we, you know, it was an incredible location, uh, many incredible locations actually. And, and great, um, great African crew, you know, which was, um, which was always, it's, it's great when you get to go to another place and you see how, uh, other people do what we've done, but, but in a different way, you know, that everyone has a different approach. And it, it, I think part of the great joys of, of my job is, is learning from and experiencing how everyone does, does the work. You know, what were some of the differences? They were in 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 South Africa. It's a little bit of a it's it's kind of a a blend of uh, of the of the British system and the U.S. system of lighting. So so in the U.S. we have very distinct delineation between grip and electric, and um, and they're they're for the most part kind of equals in the lighting process. Um, in in South Africa in in the U.K. Um, it, the the electricians do almost all of the lighting work. They set the flags, they set the bounces, things like that. Um, in in South Africa, it's they, the the grips do um, a little bit more, but not but there's but not quite uh, to the level they do in the United States. So it's you know there's that's a that's a significant difference. Also, we had a very very large crew, um, much larger than I'm used to in the United States. Um, really? Yeah, uh, and it's uh, you know it's just part of the part of the methodology down there. Uh, which was, which was kind of exciting actually, because you you know I could ask for things and they would get <laughs> happen so quickly, um, because you just have an army at your disposal every day, you know. So, so we had we were moving around some big set pieces and and we had some heavy equipment we had to to work with and, you know, the weather is a little bit tricky in that part of the world, um, so it it, uh, you know, it's it never never short on a surprise so to speak, but. But I had an amazing experience. It was fantastic. I didn't know there was even that much difference in, you know, the lighting in the UK versus the US. I had no idea. Yeah, just just in in working practice on the set, you know. Um, I mean, all, the same work gets done. It's just it's just how we do it. So having that larger crew, did was it a hindrance at all, or was everything better because of it? Well, I mean, you know, look, anytime you have, <laughs> anytime you have people 
on the set, people bring stuff. They bring trucks, they bring equipment. And and it's all in service of, the, you know, um, the, the creative direction of the show. But it is, you know, it is stuff you have to move. Um, trucks you have to move, people you have to move, people you have to feed. Um, so, you know, you're not as nimble, I, I would say, for sure, you know. Um, it requires some forethought. You sort of have to think about where everyone's going to be and where they're going to stage their stuff and where they're going to sit down and where they're going to eat. And, um, you know, with scale comes restrictions always, you know. Um, but but also, to some degree, it's also how we how we got the work done and, and how we were able to move these really elaborate set pieces and how we were able to... to uh, work in the rain and work in, in blistering hot sun. And, you know, so there's, you know, there's pros and cons to every situation, obviously. Yeah. And was this kind of larger set approach, larger crew approach, just the way that things are done in South Africa, or is it because it was a Ridley Scott project with, I'm assuming a large budget? I, well, I think we had some, we had some big set pieces that had to get managed, you know, for sure. Um, we had big builds, uh, so the construction crew was was large. Uh, I I just I think to some degree, um, South African productions, at least larger budget South Af- Af- African productions, um, tend to have quite a few people on the crew. You know, um, not in you know when you work in India, same kind of thing. You know, lots and lots of people. Uh, I, South Africa is not quite that to that extent, but. Um, but yeah, we had we had an army, and and it was great. We were able to do all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, and we made use of this this kind of vineyard property that was out in Stellenbosch, which is um, outside of Cape Town, about an hour. And we had a the, the owner had had provided us with a, a huge piece of property, which we could dig up and build sets on, and and it functioned sort of as our alien landscape. Hmm. Well, Todd, just before we go any further, just to bring everybody up to speed, can you give us a little synopsis on what the show is? And, um, you know, from there, I'd like to kind of talk about your different environments because you have some pretty drastically different environments in this show. Sure. Um, well, the show follows two androids um, in in the not-so-distant future who are trying to resurrect humanity. There's been a There's been a religious war on planet Earth that has destroyed... The, the planet essentially, um, and uh, in an effort to rebuild humanity, the, these androids have have taken human embryos to this uh, habitable planet, Kepler twenty two b, and um, they are raising these children as uh, as the next as as the next human race, essentially, um, and. It you know the show is sort of you know like all science fiction it's an allegory for um, for the human experience you know and and the show is a little bit of you know it it is trying to address uh, parenthood uh, you know what it means to be a mother um, what it means to be human uh, so there there it it the, thematically it's big for sure you know it, it it's it's tackling some really heavy heavy subjects. And it's, you know, there's a little bit of kind of ethnographic or anthropological study in it. You know, we're sort of watching these children grow up um, slightly out of the context of planet Earth and and addressing a lot of the same issues that 
uh, normal human children on planet Earth deal with, you know? So it's, um, it was fun to kind of explore it and, and, and see where we could go. And, and, you know, the amazing thing working for someone like Ridley is, uh, uh, you know, we could really explore it far, you know, we could really go for it. And Aaron's writing, you know, in particular, he's, you know, he's, he's tackling some big stuff and he's, um, really thinking outside the box. I mean, it's very different, you know, it's, it's not Star Trek, you know, it's very different and, and cool. And talk to me about the locations that you have. I know you said shooting in South Africa, but you've got, you've got like a variety of really different looking and feeling locations on uh, Raised by Wolves. Can you walk us through each one of them and uh, talk to us a little bit about how you approach them? Sure. Um, well, the you know, the show, the, the characters first land um, in this kind of barren, semi-desert, very arid landscape. And uh, they build a settlement there. And it's, there isn't a lot of food. Um, it's very cold at night. It's, uh, it's always snowing at night and it's sort of a bright night. We kind of, we, we did this day for night treatment, um, that Ridley had conceptualized with Darius Wolski for the first two episodes and we, we carried it forward. But, um, and we're definitely going to talk about that by the way, life is not easy where they've landed and they're, they're constantly looking forward to, to building up their strength and building up their resources so they can, uh, travel to the tropical zone of the planet where they think that life will be easier. Um, and the, the locations we had, we had this winery sort of vineyard, big piece of property that we cleared, uh, and turned into, a, a barren desert. It was not that way when, when, um, wow. when Chris Seegers arrived, he, it was lush and green and it was plowed and cleared and graded and, and, and the sets were built there. That's crazy. So you, you stripped that whole land and turned it into a desert. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, mostly because we like the mountains, you know. So yeah, it was it was it's a huge undertaking for sure. Uh, and then there's other locations within the property. There's sequences of the show where mother goes and finds a, a pod, and she logs into the pod and and sort of collects her memories. And uh, that was a forest not far from our other location. I mean, you know, a quarter mile, half mile away. Um, and there were actually leopards that were living in this forest <laughs> periodically wow. people would see them but um but yeah so the you know those were sort of our two main locations and then within the scope of that you know we could resurrect piles of rocks or or you know trees you know and and sort of we had the ability to to move the pieces around and, and turn that raw land into a new new part of the planet uh, yeah and then of course there's stage work and some location work in in, in cape town for the, especially for the flashback sequences to boston um, which are peppered throughout the show. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk about those too, because there's kind of a unique approach to the way you handled the flashback scenes. Um, let's focus for a moment on that, that difference between the wide open space of these desert scenes that you have, where everything is, you know, lit by the sun. It's very natural. It's all, you know, top light, just this big open landscape. And then juxtaposing that with the forest, which is dark and dreary and hard lights kind of peeking through. Um, those are two drastically different looks, but they all have to maintain some similar aesthetic or else it doesn't make any sense for the show. So 
how are you, what are you doing from a lighting standpoint to keep consistency between those two completely different looking environments? Well, you know, Ross and, and, and Darius and I, we talked before the show and sort of what direction we were going. And we were, Ross and I took over after, after, um, Darius shot the pilot. Um, and, and what, what we did is we sort of, we took the show and it, it particularly in the, in the, the desert landscape, so to speak, desert landscape sequences and the forest, this very kind of desaturated gray, mm. uh, barren look. And we didn't really want, and I think it came from Ridley, he didn't really want it to ever feel lush and green. Uh, so we pulled a lot of color out of the image, you know, um, and we lit with some contrast, you know, it's, it, the, the, the day exteriors, we used a lot of negative. I did for sure. Um, you know, big blacks on, on frames and we would, you know, bring them in close and try and get some contrast out of, out of the, the day exteriors. Um, and, and kind of leaned into the sun, you know, it's like the sun is, I think cinematographers have a little bit of a love hate relationship with the sun, you know, it's always moving. Uh, and it's not always aesthetically pleasing. And, and, you know, it was, this kind of ethnographic documentary style that that really put together in the first episode of, of like, well, be aesthetic, but but also try and be real, you know, and recognize that these guys are are in a harsh environment and lean into it a little bit. So we did, you know, we we embraced the front light. We used harsh side light. We kind of went with it because we're not glamorizing this place at all, you know, and then in the forest. You know, the forest, we wanted it to feel a little bit more kind of um, kind of muggy and glum and, you know, that that kind of like, you know, where the mist sort of hangs on the floor of the surface of the of the uh, the forest floor, you know. Um, so we yeah. used a lot of smoke uh, and and we tried to find locations where it would be backlit so people would be silhouette and 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 gray and, and, and cold, you know? Um, so that's, that's sort of what we, you know, and that's kind of, we weren't, we wanted it to feel like the same planet, but a different part of the planet, you know, because mother has to fly and she goes, it's, it's the, in the story anyway, she's going quite a distance. Yeah. And exactly like you said, I mean, you're creating a new planet, so it has to have some sort of consistency, but at the same time, it's like our planet certainly doesn't have consistency. Different parts of it look completely different. So, I think you did a great job of, and and of course the other cinematographers did a great job of having it all feel cohesive, but feel like you're in a different part of that planet. Um, I want to talk for a minute about the the idea of vulnerability in the cinematography because in both of those locations, in the big desert landscapes and also the forest, very different feel, very different look. But I think there's a vulnerability in both where there's kind of this nakedness where you're just out in nature and you really have no protection in a way. Um, one's a very large landscape that's totally open and certainly there's vulnerability there. But even in the forest, like, yes, you're you're confined to a space. You have some boundaries around you with the trees, but it still feels vulnerable. Um, it, it, can you speak to me about sort of, uh, first of all, is that even something that you're thinking about as you're shooting this? And if so, what are you doing to create that feeling of vulnerability in the cinematography? I think, you know, our characters don't really know what's around the corner ever. And they are, you know, they're, they're pioneers. They're, they're Lewis and Clark, you know, they're out, um, 
in, an, in a completely new environment, and they don't really know what the threats are. So um, we try to embrace the space. You know, there are a lot of, there's wide, you know, really epic wide shots, uh, particularly at the settlement of just this kind of vast emptiness. And they've built this kind of semi-protective dwelling. But it's, um, you know, we wanted we wanted to show the space as much as possible. So we used wide lenses, uh, close to the actors when we could. Uh, we did move the camera quite a bit. You know, we we trying to show the scope of it um, as much as possible. And I I think, you know, there's the 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 show has this kind of objective, kind of voyeuristic quality to it, where we're watching these people sometimes from afar. You know, we're on on. Uh, we're, we're either very wide or we're on, on relatively long lenses kind of observing um, what's happening. And, you know, as the show progresses in the later episodes, it gets a little bit more, um, it gets a little bit more subjective, I think, because it, it the story evolves to, to a degree where we're not, we're not watching them survive. We're actually participating in the conversation as the audience, you know, but, but I think in the earlier episodes, um, it's it's very you know observational in its in its camera direction for sure and its cutting pattern and its style. Yeah, and I think it's really resonating just as a viewer. It it gives you that nice. I don't know if if you don't like science fiction, that's the show science fiction. That's for sure. But I think what I love about it is that blend of the humanity with it. Like everything feels grounded, even though it's clearly a science fiction story. Everything feels very very grounded, and I think. It's it's interesting to see because the style of it has a lot of that um, mine hunter feel in it in a way. And I know you you didn't do the entire series, but it has that feel in a way where the colors are muted. It's very very real and human feeling. It just so happens to be in a different planet. <laughs> like it, it, so, I, I think um, you know it, you're tailor made for this series. I think, and we actually have a, st- a question on Instagram from Storylit Films. Uh, the question is, the show is much different than Mindhunter. What was your approach for filming this? So I think we talked a little bit about that leading up to this, but um, can you just dive a little bit deeper into the maybe the differences in your approach between Mindhunter and uh, Raised by Wolves? Oh boy, there's lots. Uh, there's lots yeah. of differences. I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I, I really made an effort, of, um, sometimes more successfully than others, to leave Mindhunter behind and 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 not carry any of that baggage forward. You know, I mean, I think the, um, you know, you want, the show has to exist as its own being, you know, and and I was collaborating with two other cinematographers, which was a relatively new experience for me. So we were, you know, we were sort of figuring out what the show was together and and taking what Darius had done and building on it and expanding it and embracing it and, and, and supporting it, you know, um, and it's, uh, you know, the, we used a lot of cameras, uh, three cameras pretty much, uh, sometimes four the entire day. Um, and so, the, you know, when you when you work that way, you know, long lenses, wide lenses, off, you know, off eyeline coverage, uh, it's it it influences the aesthetic in a completely different way than we had done on Mindhunter, which is very, you know, ostensibly single camera and very composed and structured filmmaking. And you. You did the entire series, right? Oh, yeah. So you did it all. So in this show, um, Raised by Wolves, you're working with two other cinematographers, um, Ross Emery and uh, Darius Wolski. Am I saying that correctly? So what was the experience like 
going from a project where you're the sole cinematographer and director of photography to this, where there's more of a collaboration? Well, it's, you know, at first I was a little bit intimidated, to be honest. I wasn't quite sure how that was going to work. And, you know, I was, I was used to kind of carrying the photography solely on my back, you know, and which is, is simultaneously freeing and, and also, um, exhausting, you know, uh, this was cool because I, I had a little bit more time with the directors to prep. You know, Ross was shooting an episode and I would spend 30 days with with Sergio or James Hawes or whoever. And we would, you know, we would prep his block. And uh, so we had a lot of time together and we, we got to really dive into what was what each scene was. And that was that's a real blessing. You know, that's a huge plus. And I think, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, all three of us, our, our episodes all look a little bit different, but it's the same show. Um and and that's fun, you know. We we would, you know, Ross and I would text screen screenshots to each other of what what we had shot and be like, oh, that looks great, man. And you know, sometimes, you know, Ross had had, had sets that he, you know, that he would open up in in his episodes. You know, they had sets that he would establish, and then I would have to carry forward. And and so we would discuss how we were going to approach, you know, this virtual monastery set. Um, mother frequently goes back to, and she, you know, she goes. She goes back in episode four, I think, and then in five, and then in six, um, sort of replaying these memories. Uh, it was a set that 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 uh, Wolski hadn't shot, but Ross and I were going to shoot, and and we were prepping um, the whole time together. And that you know that was cool because we got to we got to kind of throw some ideas back and forth of how we wanted to approach it, and we had different scenes in there with different needs, you know. So um, it you know it's it's kind of exciting to like see what Ross was doing be like, okay, that's going to work for me, but I don't want the walls as bright because I, you know, my actors are in the center and I, you know, so we would, we would discuss what each of us needed and find a way to make it work. And it was great. I mean, you know, we, we didn't know each other before that, but we became great friends after, you know, it's really, it's really cool um, to work that way. How do you decide who gets what episodes? You know, I, uh, I don't make that decision. The, the producers made it and it's sort of how the schedule works out. I mean, we alternate, you know, some of it had to do with availability. Ross came right in after, uh, Wolski finished. And, um, and then I came a couple weeks later, uh, and, and, and you're doing, you're doing, uh, sets of two. Exactly. So is that, is, yeah. Okay. Something happened with the director that was going to sh shoot the, the finale two episodes, uh, Somebody became unavailable, or I don't actually know the full story, but but I was supposed to shoot nine and ten, and then variety of schedule changes happened, and and uh, they had to pivot with directors, and and because of it, uh, it became they couldn't find a director to do both nine and ten. So uh, so Luke Scott came back. Luke had had done some episodes. Actually, Ross and I both worked with him. And then, uh, and he, he shot 10, but, but we couldn't prep simultaneously. So I, 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 unfortunately I lost out on the finale, which is unfortunate, but, um, but it's still, you know, they did beautiful work. Let's take a moment and talk about education, filmmaking education to be precise, which is exactly what we need here at Go Creative Show, right? MZ is your answer. With MZ, you have access to hundreds of hours of high-quality, video-based filmmaking education covering all sorts of topics like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, 
and more. Head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ for more information. Now, here's the thing. It's not just about education because really what makes good education is the educator, the person teaching you. Are they a good teacher? And MZ makes sure that they only have the best of the best. I'm talking about educators that you know and love, like Vincent Laferre, Shane Hurlbert, Philip Bloom. In fact, one of their new courses is called The Art and Technique of Film Editing, and it's taught by Tom Cross, who was the editor for La La Land and um, Whiplash and so much more. Like, we're talking about really high-quality educators here. Now, of course, you can buy individual courses at MZ, but what we think you should do and what I do is become an MZ Pro member. That way you have a subscription membership and access to hundreds of hours of this stuff. Now, it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. I absolutely love these guys. They get better and better every single time we talk about them. And um, their courses are just outstanding. So check it out for yourself. Gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Can you talk to me about your camera package on uh, Raised by Wolves? Um, yeah, we shot Alexa. Um uh, 16 by nine, uh, Panavision glass. Um, we didn't shoot large format. It wasn't really, you know, part of the, wasn't really part of the aesthetic. You know, we weren't looking for super shallow depth of field necessarily. We, we were on relatively long lenses for, for large sections of the show. And then on very wide lenses, um, on some of the interiors. And so, you know, I don't think large format was, would have really helped. Um, the, uh, and, you know, we started, I think, you know, Ridley and and, and Derek had, had done, they'd done a lot of stuff on Zooms um, in the beginning. And then, and we continued, Ross and I continued to shoot on Zooms. In fact, we did a lot of it on the 19 to 90 Panavision Zoom, which is not a particularly great lens, but, really? it, you know, but it's really versatile and it's very small. And then, um, and then we sort of, as the show progressed and it got more, Subjective. Um, we Ross and I kind of. Tra- I think we just sort of transitioned into primes because it felt more appropriate for the for the content. You know, we're we're um, you know the camera was participating in the scene more. Uh, you know, we're sort of inside the world a little bit. So we started to shoot more on primes. Um, so I think the latter five or six episodes are mostly primos. What do you mean participating in the scene? Well, you know, it's I. If you look at the early episodes and it's, you know, it's, it's done this way from a very specific um, point of view of, of stepping back and, and, and observing um, in this kind of ethnographic kind of, you know, nature documentary way to some degree, I think, you know, um, of, you know, you take these people and you plop this alien in the alien planet and it's, you know, it's like we're, like we're a, a, a National Geographic documentary, and we're watching from afar. So the lenses are relatively long, and um, and there's lots of cameras picking it. And the you know the cutting is can be sometimes jumpy or you know off axis, and 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 that's the style that that we were going for at the beginning. And then as the as the characters sort of become more comfortable with the location, and they sort of start to really inhabit it, and and the audience accepts. Uh, them as as inhabitants of this planet and not just visitors, 
we start to bring the camera into the conversation. So there's less overs, there's less, it's, it's a little bit more structured, I think, stylistically. And that was something that just happened organically. It wasn't like, it wasn't necessarily, I, I think Ross or I or the producers discussed that as an aesthetic direction. I think it just sort of started to feel right as, as we got the scripts in and we, and we started to see where the, what direction the show was going. Um, so, you know, we, and there's, you know, there are these kind of, uh, very science fiction based flashbacks where it's, you know, these, these kind of epic set pieces, where we, you know, back on planet earth that, that we got to be a little bit more gestured with and, you know, a little bit more playful with, so. What does having multiple cameras on set do to your lighting strategy? Well, it changes it. You know, I, I, I try to think of the, the set, the, the lighting on the set as what it should be. You know, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I consider all the coverage, um, all the coverage angles in the lighting plan. I, you know, I sort of try to pre-visualize as much as possible and talk to the director about where we're going to put the camera and how we're going to shoot it and, and then light it from that perspective. Um, but once we've committed to a, a direction, a lighting direction or a style or an aesthetic, um, I try really hard not to relight the set much shot to shot, you know? So, um, and particularly in this show, you know, I think it worked pretty well. We, we, for the most part, were able to put the camera wherever, wherever we wanted. And, you know, sometimes you have to embrace the front light. Sometimes you don't. Um, but I think, you know, Ross and I are very similar in that way. We both sort of approached it as, as we were lighting the room or the space. And, and then we would cover it as we needed to, you know, and there are obviously things that you can do, like, you know, we, for the day exteriors, we would plan around the sun a lot. And, um, you know, we, there's a, there's quite an elaborate, um, kind of battle sequence in, in, in six that, that we planned extensively, uh, Wendy Alport, the, the first AD and Sergio, Sergio, uh, Mimica Gezen, who directed it. We, you know, we spent a tremendous amount of time considering where the sun was and thinking about how we were going to break it, break it up and storyboarding and, um, at knowing that we were going to use two or three cameras at the same time. So, you know, it's like in that sequence that, you know, we got one long lens of them running and shooting and then they come around the corner and the other camera picks it up. It's not necessarily multiple pieces of the same action. You know, we're trying to consider the whole action and, 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 and breaking, breaking the scene up that way with multiple cameras. Does that make sense? It does. And, um, you know, we had, um, Pa Pavel po Pogorzelski, ah, his name is tough to say, the cinematographer for Midsommar a um, couple years back. And, you know, they it, that whole thing was shot. It was basically everything was daylight. It was daylight all the time. Yeah. That was kind of the point of the film. And when they shot the film, uh, it, where wherever they shot it, I don't remember, but the sun was out like 20 hours a day or something like that. It was crazy. So, and I, and and I and if you guys want to check that out, it's from uh, July of 2019. We were talking about uh, Midsommar and Hereditary, but um, yeah, I mean there was. It's amazing how many challenges like kind of appear when you're dealing with the sun as your sole light source, and it's like especially when you're doing battle scenes and things like that that you're talking about. It's like how how do you plan a battle scene knowing that the sun at the first shot is going to be in a completely different direction as the last shot? It's just, it's like amazing to me that those scenes even get pulled off. It's, yeah, I mean, I mean, I was fortunate to have a very prepared director, you know, who who knew exactly how he wanted to cover it. Uh, he knew what the action was. And and also, rec he recognized 
the, the benefits of planning around the sun. So, you know, in some, to some extent, we had to shoot certain parts of it out of sequence, um, which is challenging, especially if you have bullet holes or, you know, blood or, or, or costume changes, you know, or stunts. Of which you had all of them. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, it, I, it, you know, it, it, it comes from the top. It comes from uh, encouragement from from Ridley and the producers to make sure it looks great. Uh, it comes from a prepared director who is who is considerate and and recognizes the benefit of of considering the sun um, as as part of the story. Uh, and then it you know and and careful blocking and thoughtful blocking and and that's that is the benefit I think to some degree of the of the multiple DP system on television where we could sit in the director's office for several days and break the scene down and think, okay, well, he runs from here to here. Okay, there's three paths he can take. The sun's going to be here. If he takes this path and we cover it from this angle, we can keep him backlit the whole time and it'll feel consistent. And, you know, um, but, you you know, you have to have the right director in that instance. You know, you have to have somebody that is, um, that understands that conceptually and sees the benefit. And a respect for scheduling, my God. Like, you can't have somebody that just does take after take after take after take and blows the schedule. Like, you need a lot of, um, what's the word? I want to say restraint, but that's not the word. I, they, I'm just not even going to say a word. Then I'm just going to leave it be. Somebody listening will fill in the gaps. But you need a lot of something, whatever that thing is, to um, to stay on schedule. And my God, it's just it just seems insane. I, I want to transition to your day for night shooting in this, because there's quite a bit of it. And the nighttime looks very different than the daytime in these environments. It's snowing, like you said, every night. So talk to us about your approach on uh, for day for night in your episodes. Well, I, you know, I hadn't done a lot of it, actually. I hadn't done a lot of day for night and, and suddenly we were thrown into it and, and it was so much fun. Um, we, Ridley, Ridley had had this idea that the that there's multiple moons at, on this planet. And so day, nighttime is a little bit brighter than it is on, on Earth. You know, in fact, there's still a little bit of light in the sky. Um, the, the moons are up and they're always kind of reflecting so that everything is a little bit lifted. Uh, and sometimes you see clouds. And, and But, you know, we, we went for this very blue, kind of icy, steel, steel blue look. Um, and it's, you know, it can be challenging. I mean, we did, we built some LUTs. We, uh, we, we built a kind of day for night look. And, and then we found actually that, um, that the, the, it, it looks drastically different overcast versus, versus sunlit, you know, day, the day for night look where you have sharp contrast from the sun, um, is a very different feel than the kind of muddy, uh, you know, sort of uh, just top light, you know, that kind of soft ambient top light that you get in cloud cover. And, and we, you know, both, both were equally interesting to look at. It was just, they were very different looks. And so we had to build different LUTs uh, depending on how much contrast there was in the scene, you know? Um, and we used snow candles. I mean, I think we burned every snow candle that was available in the Southern hemisphere. Um, in fact, I think they were shipping them in from Italy. Uh, we used, um, we used a lot of atmospheric smoke, and we used um, we used a lot of, of um, foam-based um, snow as well. So we had kind of every trick in our book. But um, you know, Ridley said if you can make the weather 
a worse, always do it. <laughs> we did. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that philosophy. Um, yeah, it's like, I wasn't even thinking about that, but yeah, your, your full sun day for night versus your cloud covered day for night. And the other thing that's kind of unique about this environment when you're doing day for night is that you're in white sands. So you have this bounce that kind of gives it kind of a, even if you were to be shooting at night with a lot of direct, like full moonlight, it would still have a different look than a traditional nighttime shot anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Ross and I, both of us talked a lot about wishing that we could crush it more. You know, we wanted it darker. Um, but then of course, you know, because the contrast is so much different, you, as you, as you step on the exposure and you push the, you know, push the exposure way down, you end up having to put light on the actors. Mm-hmm. And there's this interesting balance of, of not overlighting the actors and sort of managing the contrast. And, you know, the wider shots, it doesn't matter how many 18Ks you have, you, you know, it's, you just can't get them out of the frame. So there's this kind of very delicate balance we were constantly fighting of, of figuring out how much we could underexpose it and get contrast in the image while, without making... Um, making the actors completely silhouette, you know? Um, and we weren't quite sure how much sky replacement or, or um, set extension w- was going to happen either. So we were sort of always erring a little bit on the side of caution, I think, with the exposure. Have you done a lot of day for night prior to Raised by Wolves? I hadn't. No, I hadn't. Um, but then, you know, funny enough, a- after that, there's a whole sequence in Mank that we did day for night. Oh, really? So, we, I, you know, we took that technique a little bit forward into that that movie. But um, did you go into it with any preconceptions that you were like, you know, that were quickly shattered? Yeah. I mean, I think initially I, you know, I had heard uh, Darius called me and he said, hey, just so you know, we're doing this day for night thing. And I was like, oh, God, really? And I why? Like, I just, why was that your first reaction? I think we, you know, you think of the sort of. When you hear that term, at least, you know, naively, I was like, I just thought of, you know, 1950s day for night at the beach, you know, um, you know, with lots of blue filters. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, And then I and then I got there and I saw what he had done and and, you know, where they were going. And I was like, oh, this is fun. Okay, we can do this. And uh, and then Luke and I did a scene together that that's in, I think, episode three or four, um, where, uh, Tempest kills a creature and, and we, you know, it was my first day for night sequence and I had a great time. I mean, it was really fun. And we were, we're out there, you know, and you think about things in a little bit differently than you would day, day exterior, because you're really looking at shapes and, and, um, and atmosphere and, 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 uh, you know, you consider contrast in a different way than you would day exterior anyway. Uh, so yeah, it was, you know, proved, I, I ended up really loving it, to be honest. I was like, every time there was a day for night scene on the call sheet, I got a little excited because it was, you know, there's a part of you, you know, if you're day after day, day exterior in the desert, it sort of gets a little bit tiresome, you know? Yeah. So it was exciting just because it was something different or was it exciting because it was like just this challenge that you were able to overcome or what, what was exciting about it well i think it was because we it was a it was an evolving aesthetic that that um that we were trying to develop 
you know? And, and we weren't quite, it wasn't like we had a formula that we just threw in place. You know, we had to develop it. And, and Ross and I would, you know, we both would have different successes and different failures. And then we'd call each other and be like, oh man, I, you know, I, I put all this backlight on Abu and, you know, we, I, I just underexposed the background and then we put this really aggressive LUT and I crushed the toe and take a look at the still, what do you think? And be like, oh, that's great. Cause I got this other scene and I, you know, so we would, we would yeah. kind of throw ideas back and forth and, you know, so that it's, I think the inconsistent inconsistency of the night work is sort of is ex- exemplary of us trying to kind of figure it out, to be honest. Um, but it wasn't something we really wanted either for it to be like, oh, it's always has to look the same because the environment, you know, sometimes it's really cloudy and it's just this kind of drab, soft top light. And other times there's, you know, piercing moonlight and, you know, just like it is on planet Earth. So we, we kind of leaned into it. I mean, I hate to say the, say the word embraced it, but we did kind of embrace it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's cool. A moment ago, you were talking about your approach to contrast was different in day for night than traditional daytime. Can you just give us an example of what, what you mean there? How, how did your approach change? Generally for me, especially in South Africa, in that environment, like you said, you know, all the white sand on the ground, I, yeah. I'm always trying to increase contrast to exterior. You know, I'm bringing in lots of negative fill or, or um, you know, shading the actors with with overheads and really trying to like push, put put lighting direction back into it. And we were lucky actually because we were shooting in the South African winter. Um, so, you know, in fact, Wolski called me and he said, you're lucky you're going to get all the good winter, winter light because the sun was relatively low. You know, it was only ever 30, 30 degrees or so above the horizon because we're so far oh, wow. south. But, um, but still, you know, trying to get as much shape as we could practically um, and still maintain being able to shoot it you know, between 11 and two, which no cinematographer likes, but yeah, but we did. And, um, and, and so, you know, I'm always trying to add contrast in the, in the day for night, um, particularly in the sunlit day for nights, uh, we're often trying to reduce contrast because we need a detail in their faces. And that's what I mean. We're sort of trying to ride that edge of how much contrast does it look realistic and like, like a different time of day, without completely losing detail in their face. And, you know, you're sort of, you're, you know, you're bringing in extra bounce, or you're putting artificial light on the actor's faces or, or trying to stage them inside light. Uh, you know, I found initially I thought, well, backlight everywhere. And actually, um, surprisingly, I found that the side light looked much better, looked more believable hmm. than the backlight did. Um, so we, you know, we sort of transitioned. I think both Ross and I had that realization and we would encourage the directors to stage stuff in, in side light as opposed to backlight when possible. But, you know, we had set pieces you couldn't really move. So, yeah. you know, sometimes you just have to, you have to accept the blocking for what it is. I imagine too, you have a little bit of a benefit by having the white sand because it sort of justifies some light coming up from the, from the ground. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and the other thing, I mean, the thing that ruins day for night in most cases is the absence of practicals, you know, street lights, uh, car headlights, yep. things like that. We didn't have that problem. Um, in fact, you know, we, there's this, there's a nursery set, which is this sort of orange igloo. Um, yes. And, uh, and one of my first day for night sequences that was in the background and I, I called Justin the gaffer over and I was like, Hey man, can you put like seven maxi brutes in that thing. And he's like, oh yeah, sure. And we came very close to melting it actually, but we filled this thing with maxi brutes. I mean, every single one on the truck, 
Wow. Uh, and then once we have the day for night look on it, it's glowing like it's got some light on inside. But I mean, if you saw it during the day, it looked ridiculous. It looked like we were setting the thing on fire. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, Ross called me after that. He's like, oh, great idea. That's, uh, you know, I'm going to steal that. And I was like, yeah, man, steal it. So we, you know, we, we are constantly trying to find ways to sell the idea a little bit better, you know. The color of that igloo was so great, too. Just having that color, especially since the show is so desaturated, and then having that strong, warm, it's just awesome. I loved it. Yeah, we had two of them. We had one on stage and and one um, on location. And the one on stage, we had we could remove panels because uh, you know, it's oh, cool. quite small. And we, you know, we we're constantly, like Ross and I were throwing ideas back and forth. Of how do we get the interior one, the, the one on stage to look more realistic, you know, yeah. or, or yeah. match better with the exterior one? Um, it was fun. I, I love that set. In our last few minutes, I want to talk about these uh, flashback scenes and your approach to them. So just for the people that may not know, can you just kind of explain what the flashback is and how it's, how it is, in fact, a departure from the regular show? Well, Mother, uh, Amanda Collins' character, Mother, uh, doesn't quite know her history. There's like a memory. She's missing parts of her memories, and she's been reprogrammed. Uh, she, she, was a, uh, she, she was a necromancer, is, is uh, what Aaron calls her, which is this kind of weapon, weaponized android that the Mithraics had, had, had built. And she's been converted into this... Uh, and into a caregiver by a by an atheist hacker, and so she discovers this through a series of flashbacks, um, and she she does this by by actually plugging into the computer and, and experiencing this as a simulation. And so we we have a, a series of sequences, sort of you know the kind of like um, uh, Christmas Carol kind of thing, where she goes back in time and, and observes herself. Um, yeah, and. So you know, in, in episode five, there's a there's a series of scenes where she has to watch herself undergoing this transformation. Um, so she plays two characters ostensibly in the scene, and and that was kind of challenging. You know, we had we did a bunch of it motion control, we did some of it split screen. We you know we were trying to figure out ways to include her, both of her, in the same shot as much as possible, and move the camera so it felt authentic and not like a parlor trick. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so yeah, in the sort of the end of episode five and the beginning of episode six, there's a series of scenes, um, and that was you know I really looked forward to that stuff because um, you know to be honest, there's parts of the there's parts of the show, and it's you know it's no criticism of the show, it's just what it is. It, it there's a, a kind of Swiss Family Robinson aspect to it, you know, um, and so the opportunity to go back in time and go back to the uh, you know the the kind of roots of science fiction of these contrast the interiors and, and use a little bit more color was exciting and fun, you know? So we really, we really leaned into it heavily. Um, and we, you know, there's sequences, these kind of battle sequences on the streets of Boston and, and, and the, the scenes with Cadmium Sturgis where she's getting reprogrammed were, yeah, it was really fun. So I think like the, the flashback scenes is when you have the most, like the, the stuff that's the most familiar to the viewer to see. It's the most like regular world look and, I mean, like you said, it's in Boston, so it's on Earth. So, but when you go into these flashback scenes, like, are you thinking about, okay, how do I do this in a science fiction way aesthetically? Or or are you thinking to yourself more, no, my goal here is to give a sense of the typical world that the viewer is going to be familiar with. This is my opportunity to do, to kind of ground them. 
No, we weren't trying to ground them. If anything, we were trying to make them a little bit uncomfortable, I think. Mm. Uh, but I, it was, it, I mean, it was in a selfish way, it was nice to be able to work with light sources that weren't the sun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was like something about that. Uh, you know, and there's, uh, there, to be fair, there's, you know, there's scenes in the settlement too, where we're inside the barracks at night and we had fire and we had, they had these light orbs that we had built these kind of, um, practicals that they had salvaged from the ship that they could use as a light source and kind of lantern thing. And, um, and, you know, so we had that opportunity to, to bring a little bit of variety to the image. Um, but, but the set pieces, you know, I think, I think just the variety in set pieces makes, makes the show interesting and it, you know, it makes sense contextually in the, in the, in the story. Um, and Tom McCullough, who was the production designer, you know, really, really went for it. And we had this meatpacking facility in Cape town that was repurposed as this kind of post-apocalyptic landscape. So, uh, you know, in, in episode five, when she gets captured by Campion Sturgis, that's a, that's a huge, um, exterior that's been dressed as this kind of, uh, you know, Boston war-torn street. Um, and it was quite quite an elaborate set. And then we had a bunch of interiors built in that same facility that we could do, you know, where, where he reprograms her. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a prison sequence. There's a, we shot a, a, a I think it's an episode two, the, the, the training camp sequence where the, all the, all the, the child soldiers are being trained. Um, mm. All that stuff was done there. What was your favorite scene? of the two episodes or the episodes that you had done? Well, there's, there's a couple, I think there's the, the end of episode five, uh, he, uh, Campion Sturgis says goodbye to, uh, to mother and he puts her in the ship and it's, you know, it, it's the first time we kind of see emotion on her face, you know, uh, the, the sort of softness, the softer side of mother. So, you know, I think up until that point in the show, uh, the audience is trying to figure out who she is and she's trying to figure out who she is and she's trying to manage her emotions because they're new to her, you know? And, and we see this, this very bizarre, um, but particularly touching scene between her creator and herself where she's trying to, you know, reconcile the fact that she's leaving and she won't ever be able to see him again. And, um, and it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty touching moment, I think. And, and we, and then we re, re, we extend it in the beginning of episode six. She goes back and she replays that sequence. Um, and she, uh, she steps into herself and kisses him. And there's this, there's this really kind of delicate moment. And that was all done motion control. Um, so we could, you know, we could put two mothers in the same shot and, uh, you know, that, that was fun technically to kind of figure it out and conceptualize it, but also from a, from a story standpoint, it, you know, it's really important scene in the movie. And, um, and then there's this in episode six. There's there's quite an elaborate, um, shall we say, intimate scene with mother and Campion, uh, which which was which is where the show starts to kind of deviate and become very existential. And mm. and so that was you know that was fun visually, but also interesting because it the it, the show starts to take. Uh, take the viewer down another direction and and starts to really kind of open up. Um, so I, you know I think the latter episodes, uh, uh, you know, the viewers are in for a real treat because it's it's pretty it's pretty spectacular what happens. A couple of minutes ago, you'd said you um, were make, when you were doing the 
the uh, the scenes where there's two mothers and you have to have motion control and the camera movements and maybe split screen. Um, you had mentioned the idea of avoiding the look of a parlor trick. Uh, can you talk to us about the pitfalls of when you're doing these kind of split screen, two of the same character at the same time? What are some of the pitfalls people fall into and how, how can they be avoided? Well, I think you know, the audience is really smart, you know, and and the 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 old um, the old tricks of cinema are are tiresome to the audience now. You know, I mean, everyone's seen "I Dream of Jeannie," you know, or the, the or or Bewitched, you know, the snap, and then they disappear, and you do it in you know you do it on split screen or a cut or whatever, and um, you know that works in in some moments, but in my opinion, it's sort of like the audience knows how you did it because they can do it with their iPhone and mm. and they expect more. And so any opportunity we we can can take to 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 make it slightly more elaborate or slightly more complex or 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 more invisible. So it's not about what we're doing, but it's really about the story. I you know, I think we should we should endeavor to to chase, you know. I mean, I I think the uh so it was less about there being two mothers and showing how we could put two mothers in and 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 more about, well, she has to see herself. There has to be two of them. How do we tell that story in a way where it doesn't seem like, oh, well, they just they just did a split screen and they changed her wardrobe and now she's over here and it's in a two shot. And, you know, it, um, we were you know, we were constantly looking at that. Um, and but but without without trying to make it about that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And lastly, I think most important of anything we talked about. I have a suspicion that Raised by Wolves is this global effort to bring back the mullet and wondering (laughs) if... (laughs) Well, everyone has a mullet. What is going on in this show? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, uh, yeah, you you know, they... I I have to say, I really admire... um, You know, we got there and I I saw Amanda in the, in the, um, in the dolphin suit. And I saw, I saw Travis with the mullet and I was like, what did I get myself into? Um, and, and then, you know, I think, I think what Ridley was doing is like, just like leaning into it. Like this is, this is totally different. And, you know, if you look at like, uh, Logan's run or whatever, you know, it looks so dated because it is referent, you know, it's referential of a period of time in, in humanity on planet earth, right? The costumes, mm-hmm. the, and, um, you know, the hairstyles, everything, you know, or like Moonraker, you know, any sort of, sort of dated kind of show. And so, you know, to just go completely the opposite direction and completely embrace it, I think is fantastic. And, 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 and really cool and interesting. So, you know, I mean, I, I did have my haircut by the, you know, the hairstylist on the show. I needed a haircut while I was in Cape Town and, and, and she offered to cut my hair. And there was a moment where I was like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Can and I please she, have a mirror the yeah, entire she time? Said, I promise you, I'm not going to give you the Travis Fimmel. And I was like, okay, cool. As long as I don't get the Travis Fimmel, we're, we're cool. So. Oh my God. Well, the show is called Raised by Wolves. It's on HBO Max. It's an excellent show. And I think as of taping, I think five episodes are out. So it's there's still a few more to go, five more to go, right? It's a 10-episode series. So uh, who knows by the time you guys hear this episode, the whole thing may be out there. Who knows? But you should definitely check it out because, of course, we love Eric Messerschmidt. And also the show is great. You guys are just 
don't even enjoy it. So check it out for yourself. Raised by Wolves on HBO Max. Eric, what is next for you? What are you jumping on? I'm I'm uh I'm in the midst of prep on a on a top secret project, a film. Ah. We won't say anything. You can tell us. We'll be quiet. Well, I will I will fill you in at a later date, but we're going to start shooting um after the beginning of the year. So it's pretty exciting. Nice. So you're seeing productions coming back for you? Yeah, stuff's happening. Yeah, I just shot um I just shot the finale episode of Fargo in Chicago. Oh, no way. I didn't know you worked on that show. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so old friends of mine um so I, I kind of parachuted in and 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 shot one episode, and then uh, I'm off to I'm off to do this film. So, so we'll see. Oh, what's that next. is great. But yeah, stuff is happening. We're gonna have um, Pete Consul and Dana Gonzalez on to talk about Fargo. Oh, fantastic! Um, season four. I, I'm obsessed with that show. So we've covered it all four seasons. And um, but I mean this this season especially is going to be really interesting because it got shut down halfway through. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we just went back and did. Uh, I, I was there because Dana Gonzalez is a very good friend of mine, and he was directing the finale. Oh, nice. So, so I shot it for him. Yeah. So, but. Wow, that's great. All right. Well, I have to ask him about you. Yeah. Say See hi to those says. guys. They're all old friends <laughs> for sure. Eric Messerschmidt, where can people find you online? What's the best way? Instagram's perfect. Just at E Messerschmidt. Really easy. E Messerschmidt. Really easy. <laughs> <laughs> We'll put a link to it in the show notes. You guys are already following him, though, anyway. Well, who am I kidding? So it's there, Instagram.com, E. Messerschmidt. Eric, thank you so much for coming back on Go Creative Show. We love having you and already looking forward to the next appearance. It's my pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much for having me again. All right, I want to thank Eric Messerschmidt, ASC, for coming back on the Go Creative Show to talk to all of you guys about his work on Raised by Wolves. I hope you learned a lot, especially in the day for night shooting. Now, obviously I'm not doing big, huge productions like Eric is, but there are often times where I have to do day for night shooting. And I learned a lot from this episode and I hope you did too. Please let us know in the comments as well. Um, what else? I wanna thank our sponsors, MZ Education for Creatives and remind you that um, you should get 10% off from OpenReel if you go to openreel.com. And when you purchase, make sure you let them know you heard about us or you heard about them from us and then you get 10% off. So those are the two people I want to thank on the sponsor side. But I also want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, who is behind the scenes, pulling all the strings, making it all happen. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and on Twitter at ignitionvisuals. And of course, Matt Russell and his team over there at Gainstructure Sound at gainstructure.com. That is who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so delicious. It's not me, I'll tell you that. I send everything to Matt, Go Creative Show, and BC Media Projects. He is the best in the business, and if you guys want to use him and hire him for your projects, you can. Just don't get in the way of any Go Creative Show episodes. You can find him at gainstructure.com. And of course, we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>